Okay, we can turn back to the chapter we read there, Sephaniah uh, chapter 3, and we can read again verses 16 and 17. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Sometimes we may come across a verse in the Bible and a passage that we wouldn't expect to find it there. For example, I suppose we could um, think about reading through the genealogies of Chronicles. And say to ourselves before it starts, well, what will we find there? We might not expect very much, name after name, and nothing said about most of them. And all of a sudden, you come across Jabez and his prayer to enlarge his inheritance and how God answered him. And of course, and we, may, we may want to ask, well, why is that story there? And I think the story is there because Jabez is an example of all the rest. They're all concerned about their inherit inheritance. But anyway, you came across an unexpected verse. Or you might be reading Psalm 118. Sorry, Psalm 18, sorry. And um, <clears throat> David is describing his, his battles. And all of a sudden, in the middle of it, he says to God, your gentleness has made me great. Who would expect a reference to gentleness when fighting a battle? But there it is, unexpected. I wonder what we would expect if we were looking through the, the index or the contents page at the start of the Bible and we see that Genesis got lots of chapters, Isaiah's got lots of chapters, Psalms has got lots of chapters, and we'll say to ourselves, well, they'll say a, something a few times to us. Or Isaiah or Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're all big books. But what's the little book of Sephaniah going to say to us? We don't know very much about Sephaniah. But then that's probably true of most of the writers of the Bible. 
mean, how much do we know about Isaiah or Jeremiah or Malachi? We know a bit about Paul, of course, but, but most of them know a bit about David too, but, but most of them we don't know very much. So the fact that we know very little about Zephaniah doesn't really matter, does it? But while he may be a man whom we might want to say, well, he doesn't seem to be that important in comparison to others, it is the case he's got a very important message. And uh, what is his message? Well, like most of the other prophets, his message is the same as them. And, and for some reason, since God uh, chooses to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, he wants us to pay attention to the fact that Israel was taken into captivity in Babylon. Virtually all the prophets focus on it. Their messages are based around it. Either before they went to Babylon or when they came back. So, and Zephaniah is no different. But I suppose if, um, if we were alive back then and we heard these prophets saying to us, if you keep on sinning, you're going into exile. But once the exile's over, God will take you back to your land. Don't know about you, but I would want to ask them, what will God be like when he brings you back? What will he do? Will God be a bit reluctant to get too involved? Will he be a bit careful? After all, their forefathers, despite all the good things I gave to them, just ignored me. So I would want to know, what will God be like when he restores his people. How is he going to speak to them? What will he be like when he sees them? And so on. And Zephaniah tells us what God will be like. Can we read that again? The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I mean, that would have been very encouraging, wouldn't it? It would always make somebody look forward to restoration, wouldn't it? to be in the presence of a God who is happy to see them. A God who is so delighted 
he is going to sing to them. Of course, if that was true for them, out of their geographical exile, how much more should it be true of us out of our spiritual exile? What has God got to say to us who once were dead in trespasses and sins? Why is his gospel called by Paul the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Of course, the word blessed means happy. The gospel of the glory of the happy God. You know, in the Old Testament, Israel are warned not to appear before God and joyfully. It was a slur on who he was. I mean, people could go up to worship Baal, the Baal, the god of a storm, and they could see the lightning and the thunder going on around them. And he didn't seem able to stop what he had sent. That's from their perspective. And they would come to him in their thinking, because he didn't exist, but they would come to him frightened, apprehensive, scared. How do we appear before God? The God of grace, the God who pardons, the God who says, I have forgiven you all your sins. How do we come to him? Glumly? Out of duty? Fearful that somehow it's all too good to be true and that somewhere behind the smile there's a hammer waiting. God, God may not expect us to be joyful in our work. He may not expect us to be joyful in our society. But he does expect us to be joyful in his presence. And this verse makes it very clear, doesn't it? One commentator describes this verse as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And he um, does that because both verses express the amazing nature of God's love. But I wonder if he had in mind we kind of take John 3.16 as the main one and look back to see how it would interpret Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. 
But what if he had a mind going the other way? And how Sephaniah said God would react to his people who trust in him. If we're meant to take those features of joy and confidence and take them forward into John 3 and 16. And therefore, when we hear the amazing story of God's global love, his gracious love, his generous love, that we are meant to respond, not as if it was item number seven on the news for that day, but we are meant to respond with a sense of overwhelming celebration. God loved the world. And of course, the word, the word world there is not so much focusing on the number of people. Because there's different words for world. The, the, the term there is trans, the world focuses on the nature of people. It's not that there's a huge number that he loves, but it is that it's huge sinners that he loves. And if that doesn't make us happy, what will? It's a serious question. We're told to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Six in the morning. Two in the afternoon. Seven at night. Even in Psalm 63, which you have just sung, even in the middle of the night, rejoice in the Lord. He's always there. As I said, Zechariah predicts recovery. But it's a very strange kind of recovery. You know, people are, they like to think about the glories of the past, whether they ever existed or not. They like to think about the glories of the past, and they dream of their country recovering their former prestige. And of course, Israel had a wonderful past. Not the entirety of its history, but certain stages of its history in the past were incredible, especially during the reigns of David and Solomon. I mean, Solomon was the greatest king in the earth. Other monarchs, like the Queen of Sheba, they traveled to hear what he had to say. And I suppose if, if a prophet said to these Israelites, recovery is coming, restoration is coming, they probably would say, oh, he's referring to Solomon. It's going to be like the days of Solomon again. We'll have a very big temple. And we'll have a powerful army. And as Solomon did, we'll extend our geographical borders. 
as far as God had promised to Abraham. Because Solomon managed that. And these folk in Babylon, they might have been thinking to themselves, the restoration is coming, the wonderful days of Solomon. But Sephaniah just hasn't got that to say to them at all. Instead, he says that when they get restored, they will be weak. Let not your hands grow weak. There in verse 16. They came back to the promised land. They came back as a vassal state. They only got back because Cyrus let them back. As we can read in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, when they came back, all the surrounding peoples thought they were intruders and shook out. And they had no little power. They had to send off to Cyrus to see if he could sort things out. They were weak. And what kind of restoration is that? They could look back the way and just say to themselves, this is never going to happen again. They could look round them and see all these powerful empires actually far bigger than Solomon ever had. And they would say, what are we against them? They could look ahead. And what was there? As far as their national power is concerned, they were never to have it. Right until Jesus came, they're just a vassal state, apart from a short period. And even shortly after Jesus was, was crucified, four decades later, they ceased to exist as a nation. Weakness. What kind of restoration is weakness? God's kind of restoration. That's true of individuals as well, isn't it? When Paul was, um, um, after he'd been taken up to the third heaven, and there was the danger, which just tells us that Paul was like everybody else, there, there was the danger he would become proud of it. God sent him a thorn in the flesh. God in order to strengthen him, weakened him. It's kind of paradoxical. But then Paul said, when I am weak, then am I strong. Why was he strong? Because God was with him. 
And what was the comfort that was given to these weak Israelites when they came back to the promised land? The only comfort they're given is the presence of God. I am with you. I'm in your midst. And that's wonderful to know. God is our strength. Of course, their weakness was no reason for inactivity. As Paul, as Ephaniah says there in verse 16, let not your hands grow weak. They weren't just to sit back and wait for somehow or other something just to drop down from the sky. They were told to go on and rebuild their temple. It would be nothing like Solomon's temple, but the external features of Solomon's temple don't matter. It's who was in the temple. And the same would be true here when they were restored. God would be with them. And it's good to have the presence of God, isn't it? So I want us to think about that briefly. God is with us. We know about Psalm 46. Though the nations rage, though the kingdoms totter, God is our refuge and our strength. He's there. That was a great comfort to the people as they sang Psalm 46. And of course, it's not the only psalm that focuses on God's presence. And when Jesus sent his disciples out into the world with the gospel, I mean, when we actually look at it, really, imagine it. Some fisherman, an ex-tax collector, and others who were not even told what they did. But we are told what they were going to do. And they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I mean, even if there had been a, a dozen supermen standing in front of them, what could they have achieved? It's not a dozen supermen, is it? It's a dozen weak men. And what's going to make all the difference? What Jesus said. I am with you. I am with you all the days. Even to the end of the age. All day long. I'm sure Peter and Andrew were very close. But they couldn't be close all day long. But Jesus and his people, together. Doesn't matter where you go in the world. And they didn't all go to the same place. Some went north, some south, some east, some west. And yet the strange thing about all of them is, despite the fact they went in different directions, Jesus was with each of them. 
and did that, of course, by the Holy Spirit. But it's amazing what happens to the apostles, isn't it? I mean, Paul says, right into the Colossians, that the gospel is preached to the whole world. I mean, that is some success rate. Three decades have passed. And he says that by that time, these men and the others who were converted through them, without any of the aids of, that we take for granted, they got the gospel to the world. Weakness. There's no reason for inactivity. Because it all matters who's with us. And that's what God said to these people in Jerusalem. I am with you. John Wesley, talking about near the end of his life, and people were no doubt were saying to him, you've done this and you've done that, you've done the next thing. He just said, the best of all, God is with us. And that's our hope today, isn't it? We're not going to match the world's power. Why should we want to? We may or may not match the world's intelligence, but that is not going to bring about gospel success. What is needed is God to work. But God works through us, not without us. And the people in Israel had to learn that. So do we. Prayer is not so much us handing something over to God for him to do. Although there are some things that he only alone can do. But prayer is asking God to give us the strength to do what we should do. That's true, isn't it? Before I became a minister, I worked in several different companies. Regarding each of these companies, I prayed that the people in them would be converted. On no occasion did God send an evangelist to any of these companies? If they were going to hear anything, I had to tell them. And that goes for everywhere. So God is with us. Wesley knew it. We should know it. We know it in our heads. But he's with us just now. He's in the midst. Which of course means he's equally near to everyone. There's nobody else in our gathering who's the center of it. 
and there should be nobody else, indeed in our world, who's the center of it. Only God, Jesus, because he took, said words similar to this, didn't he? Whatever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And the midst means not on the periphery, not sitting, as it were, out of sight. He's in the middle, equally seen by everyone. And that's what Zephaniah says here in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. Everyone can see him clearly. Doesn't matter what your individual circumstances are. You're the same distance from God as anybody else. And by that I mean you're as close to him as anybody else. And as we see that, we just say to ourselves, well, who's with us? The Lord your God. Well, what are we told about him? Well, we're told he's a covenant God. I mean, God goes out of his way to stress this detail every time he mentions his own name. People ask me, what's your name? And they might, if they know enough, they might say, oh, well, that's connected to St. Columba or something like that. But revealing again to know my name doesn't actually say very much about me. But when we come to the Almighty, to him who goes out of his way to tell us again and again and again that he is Yahweh, Lord in capital letters, the God of the covenant, the God who never breaks his promises. I mean, that's why they're back in the land, isn't it? He has kept his promises. He kept his negative promises. If you depart from me, I'll punish you. He kept that one. But he also said he would restore them. And he's kept that one. He's a God who keeps his promises. Not just for a few months but for centuries. That was true of Israel, but what about us? Our covenant God. Why did we hear the gospel? Because God kept his covenant. Why were we drawn to trust in Jesus? Because God kept his covenant. Why have we been restored all the numerous times we have fallen? Because God keeps his covenant. Why will we go to heaven when we take our last breath? Because God keeps his covenant. He is faithful. Faithful all the way. And why in 20 billion years from now, Will we be in his presence if we're Christians? Because he keeps his covenant. 
He's the God of the covenant. He's with us. He's also the God who will save. He's a mighty one who will save. I mean, what does a mighty one do for weak people? What would be the logical expectation? Well, surely if if his power must either be against us or for us. I mean, that's the only two options. If he chooses not to exercise it, he's against us. So I think there's a kind of logic here. The prophet is saying to the Israelites, he's taking you back to your land. Now you're back in the land, he will save you. These enemies who are making all that noise around you, just ignore them. The God who's in your midst, he is mighty, he will save. Same goes for ourselves, doesn't it? It's logical. What Paul said, since God has given us Jesus, how will he not with him freely give us all things? We don't go to God, we want to put it this way, with a bunch of credit cards trying to buy his favor. He gives everything freely. Tomorrow, the God of all grace will be with all his people everywhere even as he is today. And he's with them to save them from whatever's happening around them. The prophet also says that this mighty saving God who's at equal distance from all of us, that he is rejoicing over the people with gladness. doesn't have to add the bit at the end with gladness, but it's, it's added there to stress the reality of it. He will rejoice over you would be enough. It doesn't have to stay with gladness. But there's a double emphasis. And of course that raises the question, where is God the happiest? Where is God the happiest? Well, he's happiest when he's with his people. I mean, he's going to present us to himself with great joy at the end of the day. We'll be happy, but the great joy refers to God. Exuberant, overflowing. Who is like our God? We're told that when a sinner repents, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. 
The word presence there should have a capital P because the presence of the angels is God. There in his presence. What other presence are the angels in? Angels don't need space in the way that we need it. They have their own way of functioning. The presence of angels is God himself. And there's joy in their presence. The verse is not saying really that there's happy angels, although no doubt they are happy. But he is saying that they're in the presence of this God of, who is celebrating a sinner repenting. I mean, there's been, we don't, we don't know who they are, but there's been sinners all over the world today repenting. Because the gospel has been blessed. And up in heaven, God is happy, full of joy, exuberant joy. When Jesus said to his disciples, my joy I give to you, they had no idea what he was saying. The joy of the eternal. At the same time, it might almost seem contradictory. We're told there in verse 17, he loves quietness. He will quiet you by his love. And of course here the prophet changes the image. And the uh, Depends on how you translate it. This can be translated two ways. It either means God quiets his people or God, which is the way our translation goes, or it could, or it could also be translated that he will quiet himself. And I suppose you could almost see it. He is exuberant in this praise. And then there's a time of quiet. If that second rendering is optional, and I can't tell you which one is right, so the best thing to do in these situations is just to accept both of them, because both of them are true. He will quiet you in his love. What a beautiful picture. With a mother quieting her child, her infant. An infant who doesn't understand what's going on. So the mother just quiets it. We can understand how one mother does it with one child, or perhaps if they got if she's got triplets, it's more difficult. But how many is God quieting? At this moment, how many of his people does God have in his arms as they go through all the 
the stresses of 21st century life. And there's no comfort anywhere else, is there? But there's the almighty arms, and underneath, what does Moses say, mean when he says, underneath are the everlasting arms? I mean, is that a picture of a parent holding a child? Or of a strong man lifting up a uh, heavy weight? But God, he quiets us. And he gives us a peace that passes all understanding. Somebody should be able to say to us, I don't understand why you're content. I've just been watching the news and I'm starting to panic. Why are you content? Because God quiets his people. But then it could mean he quiets himself. (laughs) Which has got the idea of delighted contemplation. As God looks at his people and sees the work of his own hands. You know, the the recreation of a sinner's soul is a greater work than the creation of the universe. And if God said on day seven, it's all very good, or day six, there, when it was, as he looks at the the recreation of a sinner's heart, God says, very good. He's delighted with what he sees. You might think you haven't made very much progress recently, but how do you know that? Sanctification by definition means progression. We're not a judge other people and there's a certain sense in which we're not to be judging ourselves about things we don't know you and I don't really have any idea how far we are in the path of sanctification The only one that knows that is God himself. And the prophet here tells us he likes what he sees. He quiets himself with delight. And then he starts to sing. As we mentioned earlier, the children He will exult over you with loud singings. So you get this sort of cycle 
rejoicing, quiet, rejoicing. Does God sing? Well, the Bible tells us he speaks. So why can't he sing? Who are we to say that he couldn't, shouldn't sing? The ability to think and express words is a reflection of God. Made in his image. And sometimes thoughts are better expressed by singing. And anyway, we're told about heaven. And I sometimes wonder if it's the voice of Jesus that's been described. The voice of the sound of many waters. I mean, humanly speaking, and of course we don't know all the ins and outs of the eternal world, but when he is yet to be surrounded with a number that no one can count, and this crowd just stretches out into the horizon, what kind of voice will he have so that they all will hear him clearly? be great to hear God speaking. Jesus says he'll do it. I'll declare your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And up in heaven today, he's doing it. Whatever the life of heaven is like, down here we might say we're in the primary school, up there they're in the secondary school. But the same one is teaching the name of the Father. And he does it happily, joyfully singing. That's the God who's with us. We think about his love. I was just thinking about what this verse says about his love. So I kind of typed it out here. His love is tender, quietening his people. His love is satisfied when seeing his people. His love is incomprehensible to his people. His love is endless for his people. His love is intense towards his people. His love is comforting for his people. And his love is shared by his people. What an amazing God, isn't it? So as we conclude, all of this, of course, is like an analogy. An analogy is when we use something inferior to picture something greater. The actual reality is greater than what's described here. I don't think it's too far to say that human words 
are being stretched to their limit in this verse. But the reality is greater. And it's good to know that. The second thing is the nature of fellowship. When the Apostle John says, we have fellowship one with another, the one another there is not me and you. The one another is God and us. How do we have fellowship with God? We know what we say. Because fellowship means interaction. So in fellowship, we know what we say. But how do we know what God says? Well, we have to be told. And we're told in the Bible what he says. So what is God saying to us? As we sing to him, he sings to us. As we rejoice in him, he rejoices in us. As we express our love to him, he tells us of his love. This is our God. Fellowship. Some people sometimes say, what's your fellowship like? And by that they mean your congregation, etc. And they're thinking of the horizontal level. But we can ask it another way. We'll stop with this. What is your fellowship like? Up the way. We know what it's like down the way. Because our God is in our midst. Rejoicing over us with gladness. Quietening us by his love. Exulting over us with loud singing. That's fellowship down the way. Fellowship up the way. What's going up from our minds, our hearts, our voices? Well, it's good to have such a God, the Almighty. Shall we pray?